Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is a recording of an hour-long webinar that I did last Wednesday, where we celebrated the life and work of the second-century astrologer Vadius Valens. So Valens is one of our most important surviving sources for the study of ancient astrology because his nine-book text that was written in Greek uh, in the middle of the second century survived into modern day and has been translated recently so that we can study and recover and learn some of his techniques. Um, and some of those techniques have been revived over the past 30 years um, together with the techniques of other astrologers through other translations. So this webinar was hosted by Jen Zart of the Cayley Institute, which is an astrological research library that's available to the public in Olympia, Washington. So last year, Jen helped me to publish a print translation of the anthology of Badius Valens by a scholar named Mark Riley. And this was the first time that the entire anthology has appeared in print in English, in the English language. So during the course of the episode, we talk about Valens's life and work. And then we also answer some questions from a live audience who were attending the webinar that day. I think it was like 50, maybe 100 people tops was our max. So since this episode was recorded right in the middle of this past week, where there were a lot of discussions about Vadius Valens in connection with some debates about house division and how house division was done in ancient times, that was addressed at one point in the webinar as well. See the previous episodes 386 and 387 of the Astrology Podcast for more context about that debate. So I wanted to release the recording of this webinar because it represents part of the discussions that have been swirling around this week, and it may help to contribute some pieces to people's understanding of the second century astrologer, Vadius Valens, who recently has become one of the major focal points of this discussion. So sadly, this week, um, another major thing that happened in connection in some ways with Vadius Valens was that there was a huge earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria. And one of the towns that was devastated was the birthplace of Vadius Valens, which is a city named Antakya, Turkey, which is the ancient city of Antioch. And in the manuscripts of the anthology, Vadius, is called, Vadius Valens is called Vadius Valens of Antioch. So there are a number of charities that have been set up in order to help fund the earthquake relief efforts, and I've already made a donation, and I encourage all of my viewers and listeners to find a charity and donate some funds for the relief efforts if you can. So I'm going to put a link below in the description below this video on YouTube, as well as on the podcast website for this episode, to link to some resources for reputable organizations that you can donate to in order to help the people of Turkey and Syria recover from this tragedy. So, all right, um, I think that's it for this introduction. So let's get started with the video. All set. Welcome to the 1903rd, how would you say that? 1903rd birthday of Fetius Valens a very prominent astrologer in the Hellenistic tradition who was the source of more than most, I think it's like all the horoscopes that we have, except for, as Nick Campion points out, a pile of 68 that were found in a trash heap somewhere in Egypt. So he really is like an important guy to celebrate today. Um, and when I was preparing for 
doing this with Chris and all of you, um, it really broke my heart to see that there's a massive earthquake mm. near his birth city. Um, and I was already feeling for the people in Turkey and the astrologers that I know who are active there. And lo and behold, um, it was pretty much where Valens was born. So I was thinking, how am I going to share geography and let people know where Valens was born? And it's like, well, now there's actually no, no um, disputable or there's no one, you know, you have to notice it. It's in the news. It's literally in the news two days before his birthday. And also because it's a party, um, there's another white elephant in the room around the astrological earthquake that has happened in the last four days surrounding Valens's use of houses and all of that. So that will be addressed at some point today. But I also want to keep the focus a little bit on the time of that era of second century Hellenistic culture and the amazing mixture of philosophies that were going on around Valens and really situate ourselves in the life world that he was experiencing and acknowledge that he was a practicing astrologer who relied upon astrology for his work. So when we read the anthology, which Chris has amazingly brought into print form, so thank you, Chris, um, we are seeing something that is very much practitioner to student, not philosopher to theoretician or academic, right? So we're seeing boots on the ground kind of astrology and things that were actually used, actually taught. Um, and Riley has tried to create a comprehensive translation of that, which Chris can speak more to. So um, I'm wondering, Chris, do you want to speak a little bit about your recent experience working with Riley on bringing his book into print form? Sure. <clears throat> so I think it was a few years ago now, it was in 2020, you know, for many years, I'd been using Riley's translation of Valens and sharing it with taking excerpts from it. And Riley's translation um, was just a, a translation that didn't contain, it wasn't complete. He didn't uh, create the diagrams that were necessary in order to visualize Valens as chart examples. Every time Valens introduced a chart example, and so um, I had always created little excerpts for my students over the years to show the chart right next to when Valens would start talking about it. And um, it was talking to you in 2020 where I was saying I, I wanted to maybe like put something like that out there. And you actually suggested that I talk to Riley and just ask him if it would be okay to do that and to publish his translation. And I approached him and had a discussion and he was surprisingly open to it. So we said about the past like two years now, I think before we eventually got it into print, um, editing the translation and cleaning it up and fixing it for typos, but also um, creating these diagrams and being very careful to make sure that we created the diagram to depict the chart exactly as Valens described it in the text. Because what will happen is at different points in the anthology, he will introduce a chart, but sometimes he'll only introduce pieces of the chart that are relevant for what he's talking about. So for example, sometimes when he's talking about um, rectification or trying to find the degree of the ascendant or the lot of fortune, he'll only mention the ascendant and the sun and the moon, and he won't in integrate other things that are like not necessary for that example. So for that reason, we were very careful to go through the text and make diagrams exactly matching what Valens said in the text 
because otherwise, um, if we started inserting stuff that we thought should be there, or if we like recalculated the chart based on where we know the planets were now, then it might be different than what Valens was actually trying to convey. Mm -hmm. So something we were very conscious about was not altering the text just based on what we thought um, should be there or might be there in the chart. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely clear because you, when he does that, and then you see the diagram next to it, you can, it strips away the information that doesn't pertain. And so you can really begin to do the technique in your head. For example, when he's talking about the conception, like calculating the conception chart. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something I've never thought of, you know, but going back through, it's like, yeah, there's only three factors in that chart right there in the diagram, because that's what you're supposed to focus on. It's not about reading every single thing or even importing factors that hadn't been calculated or or discovered since, right? Or at his time. Yeah, because one of the things he'll do is he'll use the same example chart at different times in the anthology, and he'll add or subtract different points in the chart based on what he's trying to teach you in that passage. So that's one of the reasons why even if you see a chart in like chapter one, and then later you see the same chart in book three um, that has more information from it. You're not just supposed to like take that later chart and impose it into earlier in the text because then you kind of miss the point of Valens's first example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And also just as the typesetter, placing all those charts was like seriously intense work. So we must love yeah. him. But, you well, know, what are, what are, go ahead. Sorry, you're going to say something. So one of the things that's really funny about Valens and when you go through his chart examples and you make the chart examples and you read through his text is he keeps using this one chart like over and over again. Um, was that actually, lazy? He was just being lazy? Well, let me share. Would you mind if I shared the screen? Oh, yeah, let me try to see if I can get that on. So this is when Valens, um, he just got done telling this long story in book four which is the chat, the the book where he introduces the different time lord techniques and he talks about what we call zodiac releasing and annual perfections as well as a couple of other time lord techniques and um he tells this whole story about traveling to Egypt and like finding a teacher and then eventually he introduces this technique and what it is is it's um a pretty simple technique because it's the technique that we know today of as perfections Although Valens has an advanced method of perfections where he perfects from all of the different planets in the chart. So it's kind of kind of advanced. But he says that you just start with the rising sign and you count one sign per year for each year of the native's life. <clears throat> so what's interesting though is he uses this chart example that has Virgo rising and Mars in Virgo, Jupiter in Libra in the second whole sign house, the moon in Scorpio in the third. Venus in, in Capricorn in the fifth, the sun and Mercury in Aquarius in the sixth, and Saturn in Cancer in the 11th. And then that's basically his first time introducing perfections using this example. And over and over again, this same exact chart keeps coming up. Do you happen to have the list of the, the numbers, Jen? So Times if we go to page... 88 we'll find it so i'm assuming a lot of the people here today have this book together with them and if not then when you listen to the recording you can flip along so on page 88 he's sharing an example of 
Mm-hmm. Right, Whether is... or not the father or mother will die first. Yeah, so he introduces this example and um, again, it's the same example chart and he happens to know that um, this person's mother died before their father. Um, then what's another one, Jen? There it is. See, here's an example in the context of trying to determine when the conception chart occurred. He gives this example again, and this time he only includes three points, but he says this person had Virgo rising, the moon in Scorpio, and the sun in Aquarius. And it's like he's just showing those three points because that's all that's relevant in order to calculate this specific technique. But it's like weirdly the same thing again, and he demonstrates it in order to determine when the conception chart of this person was. So he also knows when they were conceived, essentially. Wow. So anyway, he keeps um, doing that. 161, that was the okay. annual perfections one you just said, and... 208, 212, and 274. Oh, yeah. So this is when he introduces a, a new modification of like an even more advanced or complicated version of doing his already advanced techniques to technique to perfections. So again, he introduces a new technique and then, you know, this mysterious chart just like shows up again as his first example, which has Virgo rising, Mars and Virgo, Saturn and Cancer, etc. So we don't have to go through like the rest, but the point is just Valens never mentions, he never says explicitly that this, this is his chart. However, David Pingree, who was the last um, major academic scholar who took the manuscripts of Valens in Greek and then tried to reconstruct what he thought the original manuscript looked like, Pingree said um, he speculated that it was a pretty good chance that this was actually Valens's own birth chart. And I think as you read through the anthology and you see the amount of information that he knows about this person's life, because at one point, Jen and I were looking at a perfections example where he talks about going to work that the native went and worked in a foreign country for somebody and he got in trouble. He ha he got a major injury that year and he also had relationship Mortal danger from women. Sorry. Mortal yeah, danger he had, from women. He had, he had some relationship problems. Maybe it was... <laughs> He was probably a little, still a little over the top about it, maybe a little salty, but that was when he was in his 34th year. So he was only 33 years old. And there's another example where he gives this famous set of examples in book seven, where um, in this chapter, there was like eight different people that were all in a shipwreck on the same boat. And he went around collecting, he had birth charts for all of these people, and uh -huh. he went went through during the course of this chapter and showed how each of their charts indicated being in this major um, catastrophe in the same year. And that one chart shows up there again as well. And it's probably his birth chart from sometime when he was in his mid thirties. So Valens is basically like, it's basically like my age right now, or me and Jen's age doing the same thing that any no normal astrologer would do, which is you always, when you learn new techniques, you apply them to your own chart first to see if they work. And then you also document your life using astrology and using the events in your life as your primary case study, as well as the events in the lives of the people around you. 
So Valens is a really good example of that. And it really personalizes that this really was some astrologer, just like you or me, who just happened to live 2000 years ago in Egypt and who spoke Greek. Um, but he, there's something very personal about him where we can relate to some of the things that he was doing because they're things that we still do today. If that's true, that's really cool that he's like, it, that that kind of behavior goes all the way back to him. Because when I was looking at some astrology that was published in German in the early 20th century, so many astrologers started off by saying, study your own chart, like study yourself and then your friends and the next person. So there's like Pingree said that this is his hypothesis that it's valence chart that's just like so awesome to think that like we've been doing this for 2000 years 1903 years yeah there's no doubt that it's valence chart and also it's not unique because we have two other examples of this happening where Hephaestus of Thebes in the fourth century also used his birth chart as a example and he explicitly says it's his birth chart when he's showing the the um technique for conception or and then the author Manitho in the first century also uses his birth chart as an example at one point in his text mm -hmm. so it seems like it's a pretty common thing that runs throughout the tradition mm -hmm. yeah very cool so anonymous of valence has been unanonymized all right so this is valence's chart recalculated using more sort of contemporary methods and layout and everything else um Roughly speaking, it was actually probably earlier Virgo rising with the midheaven and late Taurus, um, based on one of the examples he gives at one point. And this is using the tropical zodiac. So one of the things that we noticed that was really interesting is when we published his book, the anthology, in October, and this is the first time that the entirety of the anthology had been put together and published in English in print form in modern times. There was an earlier German translation, an academic one, but it didn't contain all the chart examples. So what was really interesting is there was a solar eclipse in Scorpio right around that time, which was very close to Valens's moon in Scorpio in his third house of communication. Um, and I thought there was something really striking about that, that um, our, chart, our charts actually continue to work. And and sort of uh, reverberate even after like thousands of years after we're gone. And I know that's something you've focused on a lot too, right, Jen? Yeah, and I have seen it um, have some profound effects. And yeah, I just I think it is weird because all of a sudden in the astrological community, you know, we've we published this book in October around the time of that eclipse, and there's just been a increase of activity of Valens over the course, like very recently, especially in the past week, focusing on his text and different interpretations and different debates about some of the ambiguous passages in Valens's text and some of his examples. Um, and you and I scheduled this, I think we agreed on this like a month ago or something like totally. this, and then yeah. scheduled it to happen on this day, just on his birthday to celebrate Valens's birthday. Um, and then there's been so much discussion about him this week, but also, yeah, um, he, in the manuscripts, the name that's given for him is Vadius Valens of Antioch. Mm -hmm. And Antioch was a city that um, is now in a, a city that's in modern day Turkey, that's called Antakya, Turkey. Um, and Valens does say that he 
learned astrology, but then he wanted to find more powerful and more advanced timing techniques for studying smaller increments of time. So he says that he traveled to Egypt. He probably went to Alexandria, Egypt, which was like one of the biggest and most metropolitan cities in the world at the time, and was also probably the birthplace of Hellenistic astrology. Uh, and he went there and he found a teacher and settled down and set up a school for astrology in Egypt. But it is really notable that, yeah, there, there was that major um, earthquake there recently and, and just a lot of weird things going on seemingly with this author and his work and everything surrounding it suddenly becoming very relevant again recently. I assume there's something like connected astrologically to some of that. Yeah, it's it's amazing sometimes I think also about that other level of prediction where like the shipwreck example, sometimes there are things higher than one's individual chart that happen in terms of your fate unfolding um, and that there can be simultaneous correspondence as well on the microscopic level of each individual person. But there are certain mundane events um, that happen. His contemporary Ptolemy talks about that in terms of like, can you change your fate? And it's like, well, sometimes there's something that's at work a little bit higher than you, like the chart of a nation or a certain kind of other political entity that can determine the conditions of your existence, you know, and then you're operating underneath that. And so your own chart has to adjust to those parameters, you know. Yeah. And, and there's just something about what the natal chart is that that speaks to and something about the moment in time in which we're born and the moment that we occupy in our lives um, being marked by that and being represented by the birth chart, but then that moment living on. And sometimes even after we physically die, there can be things about our impact and our legacy in the world that continues to be relevant and continues to come up. Um, yeah sometimes for many years in the case of Valens or, or Ptolemy, just imagine, you know, I think about that sometimes. I thought about that when I was writing my book in 2017 when I published it, uh, which was hard because I, I, I'm used to reading Valens's text and Ptolemy's text, so I'm used to knowing what it looks like when you write something that you're not quite clear on or you write an ambiguous sentence, and then 2,000 years later, there's somebody like scratching their head trying to understand what you were trying to say because your work ended up surviving and was very important. Um, and that was always in the back of my mind when I was writing my book, um, just this idea of like legacy and what we pass on to future generations of astrologers and doing the best we can to be clear um, in what we're trying to say and expressing ourselves. You know, And this is relevant, especially in this context, since we're doing this under the auspices of your amazing research library for astrological books and history, um, but yeah, prior to the Renaissance, all books were copied over by hand by scribes. And if you wanted to get a copy of a book, somebody had to literally sit down with a copy of the book and then copy it over um, onto, you know, an, into another book by hand. Um, so it's not that only one copy of Valens survived. We actually had a bunch of different copies and a bunch of different parts of Valens that survived that were copied by different scribes. And then the challenge in modern times was for scholars to compare some of these different copies that did have variations and different errors or different um, changes in them, and then try to figure out what the original was based on what the majority of the manuscripts said. And that's like an interesting piece of astrological history also when it comes to trying to debate the texts is that there's this whole other element of 
textual analysis that you have to take into account. Right. Um, the version of the anthology that we have, that one of the manuscript traditions, that it has an appendix of some additional chapters that have been added to it in the 5th century. So Valens lived in the 2nd century, but then somebody that got a hold of a copy of his book took some of his techniques and they basically like wrote some notes. They were summarizing some of his chapters on annual perfections, but they also decided to apply it to their own chart. And they wrote down their chart example from uh, like the year 400 something. And then that chart and that chapter got passed off as part of the manuscript tradition of Valens. But it's somewhat easy for scholars to look at that and see that this must be a later edition because it has this chart that we can actually date using modern astronomical software to the fifth century when we know that Valens lived in the second century because most of his chart examples are from like the the 150s or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was the um, the horoscope of Emperor Valentinian III, who was assassinated at the age of 36 on the 16th of March, 455. You know, that's that's a really important thing. And I'm glad that that you've created a paper copy of this instead of the PDF that existed. You'll see at the end here, um, <laughs> um, Holden says, Mark Riley has made a, an English translation available online and it's expected to be printed in 2012, but it took another 11 years. Um, and, you know, having a place that's not subjected to digital loss is important, I think, you know, and the, the sort of text, that tactileness of being around a book and seeing, for example, other things like just walking across the room and having the Greek horoscopes from Otto Neugebauer. I've never seen, like, like taken upon the research project of looking through this to compare, but when you look at something like this that has the same horoscope data that you've put in to Riley's translation, it's like your mind does these interesting connections and you start to see things in almost like a stereoscopic way and all the little citations, it's like they're speaking to each other, but then the things are actually in front of you. They're not on this screen and not, you know, subjected to this sort of fatigue of digital life that I think we're all kind of suffering from, you know, because here we are meeting in a digital space and we could just be present together in the same room, you know. Um, so Yeah, I think there's something really important about physical books. And aside from just enjoying or preferring to like read a physical book, if I'm reading something that's really long, even though you know, ebooks and online discussions are super valuable and interesting and useful to engage in as well. Um, just in terms of like the preservation and the passing down of the tradition and making sure that things survive us, um, especially in this digital age, I think print books are so important. And that was why it was important for me to put Valens in print mm -hmm. um, in order to ensure the survival of that book into the future. Um, you know, just in case like an EMP wave like right. the sun sends off like a solar flare and like knocks out all of the you know digital pdfs of riley's translation at least we'll have this print book and because um you know i have so many other books like you know we have older books like william Lilly's text which there's still like copies of floating around from the 17th century because it's in print form and there's just something so durable about that format yeah, and I also wonder now, I mean, we also have experienced the most recently the transition of Twitter from being a public company to a private company, and a lot of conversations have been, I don't know, I mean, how will they, how will these like really potent and sort of really live communications between us now get preserved 
for perpetuity if this company is so unstable that it just suddenly disappears one day. You know, I think a lot of valuable conversations have been put under threat immediately and had emphasized this idea of the longevity of the written word as a technology. Yeah, because stuff does disappear sometimes. I mean, we saw that with MySpace. There were a lot of great discussions that existed on this like social network in the mid 2000s, and then it was just gone. And then many of those can't be recovered. Or you see it commonly, like with it, when an older astrologer passes away, their website eventually stops being maintained and goes offline. And while sometimes that stuff is like snapshotted on the Wayback Machine in the Internet Archive, it's not always as as surefire of a of a thing that that's preserved mm -hmm, yeah and when we were getting close to the, the anthology being published again i it was like a meta moment for me because i love zodiacal releasing i remember those that one weekend that kent by and you and i were like okay we're gonna make an app for this online so we did this other visualization um app and then i've i asked kent to make it a lot longer so he made it for to be a research tool that could cover 200 years and that's what i was looking at for posthumous astrology to see if someone born in 1880 was still relevant in 2013 and then as we were getting this book ready, I'm like, wait, so this is the book that taught me how to calculate that. And now I wonder whether or not he's in a peak period. And that brings that brought up then this one technical problem of like, well, is it an Egyptian year of 360 days? Or is it acknowledging that the solar year is 365.25 days? And when you have someone who's turning 1,903, that adds up, you know, that fractional margin. And I don't, I, I don't have the bandwidth to do the research to see whether or not that would pertain in this moment, but I'm setting that out to the group here to say, if you wanted to see comparatively, like using Valens as his own example, like what is his zodiacal releasing from the part of spirit in tandem with this book coming into print, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. That, it must be century. actually because of Riley, there must be some period that's, uh, this must have been like a loosing of the bond because of Riley having something and then 11 years later this comes out, but he was doing the translating before he got his stuff online, right? So this would have been like maybe that, what do you call it? The culmination? Mm -hmm. Yeah, potentially. I yeah. mean, that is an interesting point though. It's interesting that Holden mentioned that in that book that Riley's translation was going to come out in 2012. Um, I forgot because before us, there was there was another astrologer um, who was going to publish Riley's translation, and he, um, Dave Roel, he ran Astro America, where he had reprinted a bunch of um, translations of of older astrological works like Dorotheus of Sidon and Firmicus Maternus, and he was going to print this book, but then he sadly passed away of a heart attack as he was like putting it together, so that never came to fruition, and then it was just not happening by anybody for most of the past decade. So that was part of why we sort of picked up the the project and decided to bring it to completion. Yeah, Dave's passing was really sad because of the way that his astrology classics series brought back into wide circulation so many traditional texts. And in the foreword to his to Dave's edition of Blagrave, a medical astrologer from the medieval period, he actually says, I'm probably going to die of a heart attack, according to this book. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Whoa. I wouldn't print that myself, but he was kind of a feisty guy in his mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So uh, there's a comment here and I want to 
say Milo says there's an interesting conversation with a student of Sam Reynolds at last year's Norwalk. She was talking about creating a digital archive project which could preserve influential astrology research that's only been published on ephemeral platforms and social media. That would be amazing. It would also be amazing to get it in ink, <laughs> you know, various things in ink. I was thought I was thinking even before as I did my academic studies, you know, we're reading like the letters of Rainer Maria Rilke. And it's like, are we going to be reading the tweets of so-and-so, you know, like how do we preserve those ways of communicating? We don't have a postcard or a, you know, letter to send to someone. We have these sort of bite-sized, literally bite-sized things that are vanishing in thin air. Yeah. It'll be really interesting to see in the long term because we're so in, it's so early after like the internet age. So we're so early, what, 20, 30 years into it at this point, um, you know, will astrologers keep publishing physical books or will some astrologers really focus more on their digital creations through like their YouTube channels, their podcasts, their, you know, um, TikTok accounts or other content platforms where you can generate content and teach people astrology and pass on the tradition and whether some of those are more ephemeral or if some of that's passed on in different forms or what things will look like over the course of this century. Yeah, I'm definitely trying to get people to publish books, as you can tell. <laughs> right, I can see one or two behind you. Oh, oh, that one? Oh, look at that. Wow. Yeah. This is this is what I used to build forts for my daughter. Okay, I wasn't yeah. actually, I didn't actually oh. see that, but that's actually funny. Um, And then I, I brought this out too for show and tell. I also just want to emphasize how long this table is. It's kind of a nice table. Um. This is the elusive project hindsight out of print. Valen's translations, all five of them, which is what most people had for the longest time, right? Yeah, that's what I started with because those were the first English translations starting in 1993. They started making these preliminary translations of Valen's um, and translating the text from Greek into English for the first time. And they were discovering like new things, like new Time Lord techniques. Um, Valens is our has the most chart examples of any ancient author. He has um, over a hundred different chart examples. So it wasn't just talking about the theory of the technique, but you're seeing how he applied it in practice. And sometimes how people apply things in practice is different than than the theory. And it's important sometimes to to look at that disconnect. Uh, just in the same way in the later tradition, like William Lilly, there's been, um, once his work was re revived, there were debates about his use of the void of course moon once they noticed a discrepancy between how people thought he defined it versus what he actually did in the example charts. So that's like an important thing about Valens, and that's why he's our most important surviving source, aside from being one of the longest, is because he contains so many example charts. Yeah, and he was a he was a practitioner and Ptolemy was not, he was a compiler. And um, in Holden's description of the relationship between the two people who lived at the same time, there's nowhere in the anthology that mentions Ptolemy at all, not even in the later bits. And Holden has a theory that Ptolemy was a recipient of a, like a, basically he had a patron who wanted to create a really cool compilation of astronomical data at the time. So he was private and not as popular as we all think he was in a way. Like the, the creation of the Tetrabiblos and Almagest was a private enterprise. 
Yeah, I mean, Holden is a little bit harder on Ptolemy than than I am sometimes, just because I, I don't know if Ptolemy was a practicing astrologer or or not. I mean, he was clearly a polymath in that he was like this genius that wrote these incredibly high level works on several different areas of science, including astronomy, geography, harmonics, um, and also astrology. So clearly he was like very widely learned in a bunch of different fields, but it's true that he doesn't have any example charts. And so his sort of presentation of astrology is different in a way than, than Valens. Mm -hmm. um, but it is cool having two of the most significant ancient astrologers whose works that survived, knowing that they were alive roughly in the same time period and that they probably lived and worked in the same city in Alexandria, Egypt. So who knows? It's like they could have crossed paths. We really have no way of knowing. Valens probably would have been a slightly younger contemporary of Ptolemy. So um, you know, I sort of think about like the new generation of astrologers that's coming up right now, just 10 years behind me that are in their early to mid 20s or late 20s, and they're 10 years younger than me in my late 30s now. And it's like how I relate to that generation or how they relate to me. You know, who knows if there were like similar dynamics when um, Ptolemy and Valens lived. Right. Yeah. And, um, from the academic side of things, I was always trying to use my my knowledge of astrology. I began learning in high school when I was 15. So I always challenged any of my professors with all grasping for the astrological text in some fashion. So I was in a history of science class, history of astronomy. And I'm like, I want to do an independent study about the history of astrology. And so this almost retired professor was like, okay, go get Ptolemy and start from there. And so that becomes the academic history of science, like official okay version of the history of astrology. No mention of valence at all. Mm. No awareness or, you know, kind of even inclusion because it was probably seen as not, not <laughs> academic enough, even though there was a translation, um, you know, into Project Hindsight that might not have even been on the radar of anybody at a university system, you know. Yeah, I think just the lack of translations of Valens until recently made him less accessible even to academics because it, it's like even if you have Greek language skills, it takes a lot to sit down and read a text in ancient Greek, especially if it's um, like a complicated mathematical text like some of Valens's techniques are. Um, but so initially, that's why it was so important when Project Hindsight started translating the text. And between 1993 and 2001, they translated the first seven books of Valens. Um, but then they, Robert Schmidt, the primary translator, he wanted to, those are supposed to be preliminary translations that were just published on little stapled booklets yeah. that were stapled together on the spine. And it was a really cool, like kind of upstart, interesting way of, of doing that, whereas they got, where they got the astrological community to help crowdfund the translation of all these ancient texts by subscribing to them. And what would happen is like every month or two, you would just as a subscriber, get a new translation of this ancient text in the mail. And it was this amazing sort of um, community effort in order to re revive the ancient traditions. But um, Schmidt always planned to do a final translation series once they understood everything, because the preliminary translations, if you follow them, they have a bunch of commentary and footnotes and uh, prefaces from both Schmidt, the translator, as well as Rob Hand, who was the editor. And you can see the evolution of their thinking at the time where they um, 
propose different theories about the texts, or there's some things where they state they're not clear about the translation, or there's some translation conventions that are provisional and that they go back later and re revise at different points. It was very much a, a pro like a work in progress of, of reviving ancient astrology in stages by translating the texts, reading them, and then continuing to grow and develop everyone's understanding based on that. Um, but unfortunately, Schmidt, he finally started publishing the final translation series in 2009, and he published a final translation of Antiochus of Athens, which is one of the earliest preliminary translations. It was published in 1993, um, but sadly, Schmidt um, passed away and got sick uh, back in 2018, so he wasn't able to bring that project to completion. Mm. Um, so that was the other thing. Um, is that the preliminary translations by Project Hindsight went out of print over a decade ago. So what I realized is that there was a whole generation of astrologers that weren't reading Valens and weren't really fully understanding Valens because they didn't have a final completed translation that contained the chart examples. And that was what we needed to fix by, by bringing this book out last year. Mm -hmm. And when something's out of print, and I mean, you can't, I don't think there's anywhere where you can buy them. And they're fairly, these Project Hindsight pamphlets are fairly inaccessible unless you have a library source or access to somebody who was getting the subscriptions in the 90s or yeah, has right. was bequeathed that person's library, right? So um, I actually have Maggie Nalbandian's copies of Project Hindsight pamphlets that Laura gave me. So that to me is a treasure. Wow. Um, yeah, the founder of Kepler College. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think the, the, I love hearing this like, in the context of something like Patreon now, what Project Hindsight was doing is like a proto-Patreon in a way. And so yeah, it's neat to totally. see that lineage and this kind of DIY, self-published, self-translated discovery. And also the willingness to have something imperfect go out there because it's a beginning. You know, just try it. Just put it out. We'll finalize it later. And okay, so obviously he's not the one to finalize it, but the community can work on it and see like, is this how we are going to understand that now that people who are practitioners are able to engage with the material and not scholars who sometimes translate things funny because they don't understand the underlying techniques or philosophies of what that astrological text is actually aiming for. Yeah, for sure. And it's also, it's a really good point because it's, it's also interesting and worth reflecting on as part of a broader point, which is like no one astrologer ever figures everything out about astrology in their one lifetime because it's too big and it's too massive of a topic. And so each of us always pushes the field forward um, as far as we can within our lifetimes, but then eventually we hand that off to the next generation of astrologers and they carry the baton forward from there. And that's been a constant process for thousands of years now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think when I first met astrology from the curriculum designer of Kepler, Gary Lorenzen, I was 15. Like I said, he was my high school teacher and he was sharing all of this amazing stuff about astrology with me. And I'm glad he caught me when I was that young because I was able to go to a university and irritate all my professors about why don't you know about this entire domain of human experience? You know, I'm going to challenge you to widen this class curriculum to include it because I couldn't go to Kepler. <laughs> so I just pretended to take Kepler with me where I was. And um, and lots of interesting things precipitated from that, but also this desire to create a culture going forward where we can hopefully reach people who are pre-college so that when they do go to universities, they can begin to ask these questions as a group and say, why don't we have this as a part of our curriculum? 
Why is this excluded still? Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Very cool. So I'm going to, I mean, we've got about 10 minutes. Um, if anyone has any burning questions for Chris, this is a casual vibe. Mm -hmm. We want to keep things chill because it's a birthday party situation. Um, but if you wanted to raise your hand and ask a question, um, you may actually, um, I think. Can I ask a question to Chris and Jen? Yeah. Hi. 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 Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm wondering, Chris, uh, can you tell me anything about Valence syncrasis, S-Y-N-K-R-A-S-I-S, which is in, I've got, I'm reading from um, the Valens. I've got a, I, I haven't bought the new edition yet, okay, of anthologies. So I'm reading from a PDF called Vettius Valens Entire that I downloaded off the internet. And uh, I've been doing basic research because I'm writing a book about midpoints. So I'm writing a book about modern midpoints, but I want to see what, what traditional astrology I can bring into that book. And, uh, and on this uh, Vettius Valens Entire, it's 21K19P in book one. I don't know if that means anything to you with a reference. Uh, and it's called The Combinations of the Stars. And in it, he refers to a thing called syncrasis, S-Y-N-K-R-A-S-I-S. And it would appear that syncrasis is combinations of planets, uh, which he then goes into describing in, in quite really interesting, quite detail. Um, and uh, I'm just wondering, do you think he is hinting at midpoints? Sure. Without I mean... actually calling them midpoints. Yeah, I mean, that's um, Valens's chapters. At the end of book one, he has a couple of very long chapters where first he deals with, um, he gives delineations of conjunctions of the planets, either by degree or by sign, when two planets are together. And then in the next chapter, he gives combinations of when there's three planets together yeah, in the same yeah, yeah. sign or degree. So um, yeah, I mean, it's it's originally meant for conjunctions, but I'm sure that you could extend some of the same logic to midpoints since right. it seems like midpoint logic is very similar. Yeah, super. Yeah, thank you. Does anyone else have a question or comment or insight? Nothing, don't be shy. <laughs> um, one of the questions was, I'm curious what the drama this week in Valens was about. And um, I did want to mention it briefly. Um, there's been debates for a long time about the different systems of house division in Valens because he actually has, he uses three different systems or outlines three different systems of house division at different points in the anthology. So at one point in book nine, he outlines equal houses. And then at one point in book three, he outlines quadrant houses using what's now called the poor free house division. But then in the vast majority of his example charts, he uses just whole sign houses. And most of the time, he only lists the rising sign without a degree, as well as the signs that the planets are located in without degrees. So they can only be calculated as whole sign charts because you can't calculate equal houses or poor free houses um, if you don't have an ascendant degree. So um, some of the controversy this week is that there has been like an accusation that Valens didn't use whole sign houses and that whole sign houses is somehow a modern invention. Um, so a lot of people have been talking about that this week because it's kind of a, a wild 
and essentially kind of an absurd claim for anybody that's actually read Valens. Yeah. I mean, um, Valens, you know, there was still an accurate astronomy that Valens was using, and he did calculate the planets to the degree sometimes, and there are some charts in which he did that. So he, he was perfectly capable of and did show an example of using quadrant houses. So that's not necessarily the issue because there's always been an acknowledgement that Valens had the ability to and seemed to have the intent and wanted to, if possible at times, integrate some of the degree-based forms of house division like porphyry or equal houses on top of whole sign houses. Mm -hmm. But the, the point is that even though he had the ability to calculate some of those more complicated systems of house division, that he often clearly seemed to have a preference for whole sign houses in his chart examples. Um, let me actually show a few just to okay. demonstrate this. So where is this? This is in book five. <clears throat> He's talking about perfections and he just like goes on this sort of tear and he starts introducing just a ton of different chart examples. Um, and he's connecting the house, the, the placements of the planets in certain houses with certain events that happened in the people's lives. But when I say that Valens used whole sign houses in the majority of ex his examples, this is what I mean by that. Um, over on the left, we have Valens introducing the example, and he tells you the placements that he's outlining in the text itself. So he says, Sun, Mercury, Venus in Libra, Saturn in Aquarius, Jupiter and Ascendant in Sagittarius, Mars in Virgo, and the Moon in Leo. So what he wants you to do is like then cast a chart or create a chart that has those placements, which is what we've done when we've illustrated the diagram on the right. One of the things that's really important when you look at this diagram and that the student is supposed to understand is he's only given you the sign of the ascendant. So he said the ascendant is in Sagittarius, but he doesn't specify what degree, which means us as the student reading his text um, we don't know what degree this chart was supposed to have because it's not relevant. And because once the sign of the ascendant is established in whole sign houses, that entire sign becomes the first house. And then the sign after that becomes the second house, the sign after that becomes the third house, and so on and so forth. He also doesn't give the degrees for the different planets, but instead he just tells you what sign and what whole sign house they're placed in. So as a result of that, in this example, because we don't know the degree of the ascendant, we cannot calculate equal houses or quadrant houses like Placidus or Porphyry in this example chart. Literally, the only system of house division that we can calculate is whole sign houses in this example chart. So that's part of the point in terms of Valens using whole sign houses that's often people try to overlook or try to downplay or not get people to notice this point that most of the example charts don't have a degree of the ascendant. They just tell you the sign. But it's not just this one example chart. It's 95% of the example charts in Valens are exactly like this. And they only list the rising sign, as well as for that matter, the sign position of the planets. So basically throughout the text, Valens is just using whole sign houses for the most part. Mm -hmm. And he never 
demonstrates a chart example where he uses equal houses and he only has one or two examples where he explicitly outlines quadrant houses. So we have to conclude from this, not just from the use in the example charts themselves, but also because he's doing delineations where he's talking about the moons, the planets being in specific houses, which match the whole sign house placements. And then he's giving specific delineations um, of events that actually happened in the lives of these natives. And then saying that it actually works, that the whole sign house placement actually matches an event that occurred in this person's life. So that also means by extension that he wouldn't be doing that if he didn't think that the whole sign house placement worked on some level or had some fundamental meaning that was actually useful. So it's not just being used as like an abstract example, but he's matching the whole sign placement with real life events. Um, so that's the other thing. So that does not mean that whole sign houses was the only house system that he used necessarily, but it does mean that it's used in Valens and that it seems to be the primary system that he appears to prefer. Mm. Man, I've not actually ever truly heard you in that way until now, just knowing like if the degree of the ascendant isn't there, then you have to use whole sign houses for these examples because there's no math. There's no other math. And his delineations are based upon those. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you can't. And so it's like part of what's happening is just um, there's a bit of anachronism going on where some astrologers from the later traditions want the later approaches that were adopted in the Renaissance or the modern astrological traditions that tended to prefer quadrant houses they want to project that backwards into the ancient sources in order to validate their own approach. But it's really not necessary because we know that all of these different approaches were being used by different astrologers. So all of the approaches are already validated that way. And it's not necessary to sort of hijack Valens's text in order to validate your own approach in that way and to turn Valens's text into like doing or trying to say something that it's not like it, it starts getting really sketchy at that point when it happens and yeah that's one of the things that's happening right now and it's it's weird all of this is coming up at the same time and we we just happen to like schedule this and publish this book and everything else but valens has really become the focal point through the analysis of these charts of a lot of discussions in the astrological community today that have real importance in our community and I guess I would just encourage everybody to sit down with the text and read the example charts yourself and come to conclusions about those example charts after reading them and what Valens did and practiced. Don't take my word for it. Don't take anyone else's word for it in terms of what Valens said. Sit down with the text yourself and read through it and develop your own understanding and come to your own conclusions. And even if your conclusions were different than mine about the text in some areas, um, I think you'll be in a much better position to be able to answer questions about what Valens thought or what happened in the astrological tradition if you sort of take things into your own hand, hands and read through the text in that way. Yeah.
Yeah, I think we have to be aware of multiplicity and allowing for research, right? We have to read ourselves and look into it. And yeah, I admit now that I was not aware of that one number missing for the ascendant degree actually means a lot in practice. Yeah, it's like the entire argument hinges on that, but it's there's attempts to sort of deceptively say that Valens did include the descendant ascendant degree in all the charts, but if you look through it, it's just obvious that that's not true, and therefore it's not possible to calculate equal or quadrant houses mm-hmm. in all of Valens' example charts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've always been a proponent of something I'm calling the open house system, which is use the house system that's appropriate for the historical period of astrology that you're practicing. We don't need to pick just one because it's like saying I'm going to build an entire house with one tool. Mm. Different interpretations need different lenses. Yeah. So, well, it, well, and one thing that was interesting is towards the end of the Hellenistic tradition, we can always we can already see authors like Valens in the second century heading in this direction. But certainly by the time of the sixth century or fifth or sixth century with Rhetorius of Egypt at the very end of the Greek tradition. Um, he has this example chart. I think it's chapter 111. It's the chart of, he says it's the nativity of a grammarian. And what he does with the chart is he will tell you the whole sign house placement, and he'll also tell you the quadrant house placement. And in the delineation, he keeps jumping back and forth between the two placements and interpreting what they would mean from the different perspectives. Um, So really what was happening is that the astrologers of the late Hellenistic tradition were trying to synthesize the different approaches and find a way to use them at the same time. Mm -hmm. And they passed that off to the early medieval astrologers, where through recent translations of Arabic by people like Benjamin Dykes, um, he's demonstrated that people like Salah bin Bishr or uh, Masha Allah or Abu Mashar were following a similar approach where they were trying to synthesize the whole sign and the quadrant house placements. Um, and recently, I actually even found a passage for Marinus um, from book, I think, 18 of Anthony Lewis's translation of Marinus, where he has this chart example where he um, gives a delineation and he shows both the whole sign house placement as well as the quadrant house placement. And it was like the sun is in the eighth house by one, but it's in the ninth house by the other. And the delineation he gives is he says, this is why the native ended up dying, why they traveled in a foreign country, Mm. because there was a blend between the eighth house and the ninth house using quadrant and whole sign houses. So, I mean, ideally, I feel like we should be focusing on that and Mm. trying to pick up where some of the ancient astrologers left off Mm. now that whole, whole sign houses has been rediscovered and synthesizing it with some of the prevailing house systems that are used today and finding a way for all of those to work together and to make sense and figure out like how to do that in practical terms. That's what I wish the discussion could be about or, or mm-hmm. was focused on at this point instead of you know needing to defend that whole sign houses existed in Valens when he has over like a hundred example charts of it, for example. Yeah. And also I to push it a little further, you know, I love that concept of going back to see how prior astrologers were doing it. And then to also kind of hold all of those approaches in the air as we practice to say, well, I'm going to read this chart like Saul would, or I'm going to read this chart like Marinus would, and I'm going to read this chart like Valence would. 
and and somehow come to a mixture of of approaches where you know it's like they're running the ball down the court in their way which plays a certain kind of game and and eventually as you get further into your practice you know I I guess I've been doing this now for quarter century you kind of come up with your own version that distills into like the Jen version and the Chris version and I'm going to read a chart like Chris does I'm going to read a chart like Jen does but I think to know our ancestors and to do the reading and see okay whole sign was being layered together with a quadrant based system in Marinus this way he's kind of the pinnacle of the renaissance tradition the germans saw him in the modern 20th century as the sort of last stand like if you could do Marinus then you could pick up where we left off right and and Saul's at the beginning in a way of that medieval tradition and there you know so it's like how does that transform through the ages and then name the lineage cite your source you know like learn how they did it and allow the different nuances of how they did it to be okay. Like Marinus changed essential dignity. He came up with a whole other proposition of, of what things um, are affiliated with whatever. I mean, this isn't a birthday party for him, but anyway. Um, but you know, it's just like, if I if you go into Bonatti and you're really steeped in that version of classical astrology and you read what Marinus tried to propose, it's like, what? And yet I'm sure if you got deep into it, it works, you know? Um, so anyway. We're a little over yeah. time now, and there are questions, and I'm not sure if people want to stick around or if we need to wrap, but I'm game to extend this just a little bit because it's really fun. Chris, can you stay for a minute, or do we have to go? Um, yeah, I can stay. I have an interview at six, but that's in like two an hour or two from now. Okay. I did want to mention in connection with this and to tie it back into Valens, what we're talking about, he has this um, beautiful passage at one point. Actually, he makes... He makes this analogy at different times at one point in the anthology about different techniques and how there's all these different techniques in astrology. But he says in in many ways, because Valens himself introduces a number of different techniques in throughout his nine books, um, but he uses this uh, analogy of a path. And he says that there's many different paths that you can take, um, like different paths on a mountain that all sometimes eventually lead, even if in a roundabout way, to the same spot, and in some ways can end up taking you to the same destination, even if it seems to be taking you by a very different route. And I think, you know, that's a great metaphor when it comes to not just house division, but a lot of the other um, complexity and a lot of the different diversity that we find in the astrological community, which on the one hand, while some of that can be frustrating, especially early on as a student, that you have all these different approaches and all these different methods and how do you settle on something to study. Um, eventually, once you get a handle on it, you can come to see the many different traditions and techniques and just takes on astrology as sometimes like different paths to the same truth. Um, and there's something ultimately, instead of once you get to that point, instead of it being frustrating and overwhelming, <clears throat> it eventually can be kind of beautiful and elegant in a way, seeing that diversity as uh, something good to, to embrace rather than something to sort of like reject or something to sort of like rail, rail against. Yeah. I mean, as you said, no one astrologer can discover the entire mountain in a lifetime. So, you know. Right. Um, so there is a passage. I don't know where it cuts off, but I could share part of it if you'd like. Sure. Um, you just want to read it? 
yeah, I'll just read part of it. But he says it's in um, our edition. It's in book nine, page 346 at the top of it. Um, but he says, I believe I've compiled the powers of the preceding methods in sufficient and even generous fashion. With this being done, there's something I wish to leave to scholars for their investigation and reflection. I'm not speaking now to the uninitiated, but to those who are keen about these matters so that they too can become aware of this multifarious and complex art, which reaches its peak by means of its many paths, its ins and outs. In doing so, they may seem to associate with the gods. Um, yeah, so he, he just keeps going on this complex metaphor, but it's a metaphor that he brings up again in book seven, and he just keeps talking about like the many different paths in astrology eventually um, intersecting at some point to reach the same or similar conclusions. Mm -hmm. All right. Were we there some other questions, questions from the date of Valen's birthday? Um, I said something about calendars and this made Gustavo curious about the process of calculating the chart that you showed. And someone else asked you to show that chart again. So I will put you as host one more time and you can pick up the modern reconstruction of Valen's chart for us. And then while you're doing that, you can think about the, Cameron's asking what the personal favorite chapters of Valens are, if you have any. Mm, okay. So here's the birth chart. And this is, um, you know, this is a, what we had is like, uh, the primary thing is just the astronomical placements get reverse engineered by, in the 1950s, there was um, a couple of scholars named Otto Neugebauer and um, H.B. Van Hosen, and they wrote a book titled Greek Horoscopes, where, there it is, Jen has it, big green book, where they had a bunch of these texts that had charts in them, basically, that listed planetary positions, but you didn't always know the date of the chart. So what they did is they took astronomical tables and essentially ephemerides at the time, which would have been printed ones, and they projected the positions of the planets back into history, and then they would look through those time periods and try to um, find a, a time period where the planetary placements were in the same signs as what was given in the example chart. So when they did that uh, process, did you? Might yeah, be, when they yeah, most of these are valens actually, because he yeah, had all of the charts in his book. He had the majority of the, he's the single largest source, but there was other charts that were discovered from like Dorotheus has eight charts, or I think Manitho has one or two charts. And then, like you said, there was others that were discovered after Dorotheus, such as there was a, a town in Egypt and it was buried under sand from like 2000 years ago called Oxyrhynchus. Mm -hmm. And in the early 1900s, some archaeologists discovered it. But the most interesting thing they discovered was actually like the trash heap of the town. And in this trash heap, they found just like stuff. 68 that they, horoscopes. In Greek horoscopes? Yeah. From, no, they found Nick Campion says 68 horoscopes in the trash heap. Okay. Yeah. They found a bunch of horoscopes written usually on little pieces of papyrus, like, like scrap paper, basically. That would just contain oftentimes the sign positions of the planets. It would say ascendant in Virgo, Mars in Libra, Sun in Scorpio, or what have you. And one of the fascinating things that scholars have done over the past century is they've looked back using 
um, planetary placements to try to find the date that matches those chart placements. And in many instances, they were able to find astronomical placements that matched really closely, which then allows us to reconstruct the actual date that some of these birth charts, some of these people were born. So Valens is one of those. Did you want me to show the chart again? or was No, that... no, you showed it. Um, I'm just trying to see whether or not Otto and um, Van, or Neugebauer and Van Hosen actually have that reconstruction somewhere in the beginning of their discussion of Valens here. Um, but I'm not finding that. So Yeah, I mean, they in each of the charts, they just kind of discuss the different ranges that they're looking at and what the, what the different possible placements. Sometimes there can be when a planet's close to a cusp, a little ambiguity, or sometimes, you know, the moon can be in the same sign for a day or two. So there can be an ambiguity where they say, well, it could have been March 10th or March 11th that would have fit this placement, but that means they've at least narrowed it down to within a day or so. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Very good work they did and I'm grateful for everything that we're all contributing to uncovering these methods and reconstructing that. Cause I mean, when I saw February 8th, I'm like, how did they know it was then? And then the next question is like, do we have to change the day because of that 10 day shift in the Gregorian versus Julian calendar? And like, are we meeting on the wrong day? <laughs> you know, like, um, so, and yeah, and thank you. So we're kind of wrapping. If there's not any more questions, um, thanks for taking extra time. Oh, uh, yes, the preferred chapter question. We can end on that. What are your favorite chapters of this anthology, Chris? What is my favorite chapter? Um, I mean, or a few. I'll just remember, I'll tell you like a few passages that I always remember that always stick in my mind. One of them is, I think it's in book three at the end of a chapter, or maybe it's at the end of book three, Valens he apologizes that his chapter that he just wrote isn't more detailed and that some of his teachings can't be more precise or that he didn't go into enough in the technique that he just taught. But he says he's struggling with some issues at the time and that he's dealing with depression because his favorite student just passed away or just died. So, um, and then he kind of like ends the book there with that sort of like apology that he's like dealing with some stuff. So I always think about that because it's like you realize this is like a real life guy that was going through some stuff, but also that there were like, you know, teacher student dynamics back then that he was part of like a teaching from teacher to student, like individual people and instructing individual people that he wanted to carry on the tradition for him. But in that instance, um, that student passed away and therefore maybe balance would have been worried that 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 his tradition or his approach wasn't going to be carried on um we even potentially there's other books where somebody named marcus is addressed and we don't know if that perhaps was the name of the student that balance was writing the books for um but there's something about that that's really notable just because i think he would be happy ultimately there there's always been this tension in balance where on the one hand he does have a few passages where he asks the reader to, to swear an oath to keep his teachings secret because he says that they weren't meant for the unlearned or the uninitiated um, because astrology to some extent was part of a mystery tradition at that point, but also because he does mention at one point, I think in book seven about how he saw some of his writings like circulating without his name on it mm -hmm. so that somebody was kind of like ripping him off and not giving him proper credit, um, which is kind of like funny astrologer drama in the second century. But for him, it was pretty serious. So he asked you to swear this oath to like keep his teaching secret. Um, 
so for me, there's always been this tension between what would Valens have thought about the promotion of his work and the publication of his book in modern times? Would he have been, you know, sad about that or like horrified about that if it was supposed to be part of a mystery tradition? Or alternatively, like what I usually come to is that, you know, no, he was trying to pass this down to students and trying to make it so that the tradition would survive into future generations. And that was really part of his life's work, which is why he wrote this very elaborate set of textbooks on astrology in the middle of the second century, because he wanted to pass down the astrological tradition and he wanted it to survive. So I've always defaulted to thinking more on the side of that ultimately he would probably be happy that his work survived and that his techniques have proliferated in recent times and that we're still talking about his work to this day. Um, ultimately, I think just reading the different texts and the different chapters and getting a sense for his personality, that's where I tend to fall when it comes to that conclusion. But if I am struck down by like a terrible like illness or like, you know, die suddenly at some point, you know, who knows? And I, I want to be clarify, I'm joking about that. If I do actually die suddenly, I don't think Valens cursed me, probably, but we'll see. Your Scorpio is showing. Um, yeah, the human side that comes through the technique, that's a really lovely way to acknowledge that he was a real person who existed. And these techniques didn't come out of a vacuum. They came out of human relationships. So um, thank you, everybody, for extending your day here to acknowledge Valens with us and spend his birthday talking about his life and work and connecting to Kaylee and Chris and me. And I hope to see you again. And thank you so much, Chris, for all of the work that you've done to revive uh, Valens in the Hellenistic tradition and pass it on to people who are going to be doing this for you in 1900 years. Right. Yeah. Well, thank <laughs> Thanks so much for hosting this and for helping me to get the book out because, like I said, you were the one that originally proposed the idea. And then also through your work editing and doing layout, like it wouldn't have been possible without you. So I'm really Aww. happy to be able to like have everything come together. And I'm excited that you also have your institute now and your library and that people can go there and like, you know, read books and do serious research. Um, so people should have definitely like check that out and support what you're doing. Thank you. Yep, it takes a whole village. So, and I'm excited to meet everybody in person one day. So, on that note, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and thank you all. <laughs>